we are to fear the Lord. Now, we've talked about this before, but, but it's a confusing command because we're so used to having fear, uh, to thinking of fear and only negative connotations, right? Like I have a fear of heights or a fear of snakes or a fear of punishment. And so we talk instead about, about reverence, like a holy reverence, kind of like a hushed holy awe, like, like if you go into a cathedral or, or an old church and there's a sense as you go in like, I need to talk more quietly and, and act appropriately. The architecture itself has this way of humbling us, right? The immense size of it just makes us feel small. Now look with me at uh, verse 14 here. Moses says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Moses directs our gaze heavenward and says, in effect, see all this? Everything that you can see, it all belongs to God. It's all His. Now, to illustrate this, I need a, I need a volunteer. Come up, kid, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, something like that, or, or older. Sure. <laughs> a large fourth grader. Um, <laughs> Do you want to share your name with the congregation for those who don't know you? I'm Josh. Josh, thank you. And thank you for reading earlier, too. So, um, are you good at counting? You sure? Okay. Uh, can you count out loud? Great. So, I need you to start counting out loud. Just starting at one. And then two, and yeah, so, okay, sorry. You know what you're doing. Go ahead. Okay, I should tell you, you need to keep going until you get to one billion. No, I would just... Okay, so if you were to keep counting to a billion, how long do you think it would take? Just standing here, counting out loud. Two hours. Okay. Uh, that's pretty good. All right, so uh, any other guesses for how long it, it would take Josh here to, to count up to a billion? Just saying the numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way. Keeps going to a billion. How many years? A hundred years. That's actually, so we, we have, so we have uh, two hours. Two, oh, oh, he's up to it now. Three hours. We've gone up. <laughs> we have three, so <laughs> we have three hours. We have 100 years, and we have 30 years. Okay, so the correct answer is 95 years. So ding, ding, ding. You, you went over, though, so it doesn't count. <laughs> All right, thank you. You can sit down now. That's great. Um, now, do you know how many stars there are in... Ray, you're the expert here. <laughs> so, uh, 95 years to count, just saying the numbers out loud, to a billion. How many stars are there? In, this is the Milky Way, by the way. So, how many stars are there in the Milky Way? 200 billion? Is that... Who said that? Wow, look at... That's... They don't know exactly, but somewhere 100, 200, maybe 300 billion stars. So, 95 years to count to a billion, so 9,500 years or maybe more, let's just say 10,000, 10, 15,000 years to count every single star just in the Milky Way, right? And the Milky Way, this is us, by the way, we're somewhere down there, um, 
is really just one galaxy in our local group. This is, which is really just one, that local group is just this little dot here in our section of the universe. And then that previous slide is a dot right here of local, this is local <laughs> superclusters. In the observable universe, all of that is right here. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. The sheer size of this should humble us and lead us to a position of like holy reverence and awe. Right? But it's more than just awe. The fear of the Lord conveys God's power as well. So look at verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Yahweh is described as a mighty warrior, a conquering king. Nobody compares to him. No one can stand before him. He is unstoppable and undefeatable. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all of creation. Which leads Moses to say again in verse 20, if you scan down, he says, You shall fear the Lord your God. That's not a question. I don't think Moses intends it as a sort of suggestion. It's a statement of fact. You shall fear the Lord. And we're talking more than just hushed reverence now, right? This is uh, the kind of fear that you might feel standing in front of a mighty warrior. But whereas we only know power as something unpredictable, scary, uncertain, inconsistent, God is perfectly just and loving and fully consistent to himself. So we need not live in fear of God, Right? Because we can know with certainty that he will never abuse his power. He will never misuse his power against us. Especially since in Christ we are now called sons and daughters of God. Right? We, we have no longer, uh, and no longer need to live in fear of punishment because that's been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. But the natural question now is then, well, how do we display such a fear of God in our lives? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it shapes our understanding of our place in the world. It's a step of humility, of self-denial, of recognition. I am not the king. In light of who God is and the immensity of who he is, I am clearly not king. God is which then should be reflected in the way in which I live. So I may, for example, one little example, I may be free to watch and listen to whatever I want, but a fear of the Lord will guide my decisions about the kinds of things that I watch and listen to. Right? Because I know that I have to give an account to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, one day, for all these decisions. A fear of the Lord will guide my relationships as well. So I may not feel like forgiving someone or trying to bring an end to conflict or seek out reconciliation, 
But if fear of the Lord means I recognize a higher calling, dare I say it even, a duty, an obligation to a king who rules over my life and tells me what I'm supposed to do. So I can let go of my needs, my wants, my hang-ups and issues for the best of someone else because that's what God calls me to do and I'm obligated to do what he says. So, First, what does God want from you? He says to fear Him, to have both a, a holy, worshipful sense of awe and reverence at, at the immensity of who God is, but also a humble sense of duty and obligation in light of His incredible, mighty power. Well, the second way in which Moses exhorts us to, live, uh, to give God everything we have is by walking in all his ways, as he says in verse 12. Now, the image of walking a path is woven throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. We're pilgrim people, right? We've, we're on a journey from here to eternity. But what does that look like? We know a, a, a while ago, Perhaps many of you saw the, this cute video that was floating around on the internet of this mama duck and, and her little ducklings are trailing behind her as they go across a parking lot. And, and then they get to this drain, this grate, to the sewer grate in the middle of the parking lot. And one by one, all the little ducklings like slip through, boom, 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 like all nine of them just disappear. And the mama duck turns around like, what? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Where'd you all go? There's a, a happy ending. Don't, if you haven't seen the video, it's okay. The person videoing it saw what happened, went out, rescued all the ducklings. They all lived happily ever after. But um, look, that image of little ducklings following behind their mama, that's not what the Bible means by following in Jesus' footsteps. Right? We smile, but, but Jesus himself was clear that so many people were doing exactly that. Right, these huge crowds of followers milling around Jesus, looking for signs or miracles or handouts or hoping for uh, a military rebellion or, or just curious to see what would happen. Following after Jesus until his teaching became too personal, too perceptive, too challenging. And then what happened? They all drifted away. Even Jesus' own disciples, after his arrest and crucifixion, fled into hiding. So walking in his ways, it may sound straightforward, but it requires nothing less than total and complete devotion to Christ. It requires complete uh, action, obedience, faithfulness, forthrightness. It requires intentionality and purpose. It's really more of a choice. It's a choice that we make to move consciously and specifically in a particular direction in our lives towards God and for the sake of his kingdom. So walking reflects an active pursuit, right? I could go this way, but I'm choosing to go this way Instead, my heart and my sin nature draws me this way, but I'm choosing to actively, purposefully walk forward in this direction instead for the sake of God and his kingdom. And if we begin to think this way, it impacts then just about every aspect of our lives. So how do I walk in all God's ways, and not my own, 
and not the world when it comes to the way in which I spend my money? Or how do I walk in God's ways and not my own and not the world's when it comes to the way that I approach dating and marriage? Or how do I walk in all God's ways and not my own and not the world's in something even as simple as how do I treat uh, my brothers and my sisters at home, my husband, my wife? You know, along these lines, I read a wonderful prayer this week uh, that may be helpful to you. It was written by the the pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, And he wrote this. I think it's a, a great way to start our days. He said, Today, this body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for this body. Therefore, I offer my eyes to Christ. I offer my ears to Christ. I offer my feet to Christ. I offer my hands to Christ. I offer my mouth to Christ. I present myself deliberately, consciously, sacrificially to Him. What a great prayer that that we could be praying to start our days as a way to, to, to get the right frame of reference and mindset as we seek to follow God in all his ways. Now the third aspect of our, of our answer to the question, what does God want from me? What does he require of me? Is quite simply to love God. It's right there in, in uh, verse 12. To love God. Nothing, right? Nothing is more central to our faith than a deep and abiding love for God. I think back to chapter 6 and the Shema, this greatest commandment, right, to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, your, your everything, he says, every part of you, to love God. And in a way, we can now begin to see how these, these commands, these verbs in verses 12 and 13 they're all kind of overlapping and mutually enforcing. It's not like a checklist that you work your way through. It's, it's more akin to looking at the same work of art, but, uh, but from different angles. I don't know, uh, maybe some of you have been to, seen these paintings at the Art Institute in Chicago by uh, the Impressionist Claude uh, Monet. And it's essentially the same field in every painting, right? It's just some haystacks, but painted at, at different times of year and in different uh, times of day, different lighting. And in some small way, I think Moses is doing something similar here. All five of these commands that I'm talking to you about this morning, they're all really just different shades of the same command, which at its heart is just to love God. But Moses does add some new elements here nonetheless. So if you look at verse 14, Moses says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens, the earth with all that is in it. We've we've talked about that already. But that's the context, because then he says, Yet, the Lord made all this, yet, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all the peoples 
100 billion stars just in our Milky Way, right? The same God who made all of that, the same God who sustains all of that, who knows every corner of that giant universe, he also set his heart on the Israelites. That's just astonishing. Right? I don't think we have anything in the human world that we can compare it to. There's no illustration that can capture the immensity of that contrast, the beauty of God's electing purposes. Moses talks about God's um, great love for his people again down in verse 22. So he says, Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. God took a single family, just 70 people, and he grew them to the extent that they could no longer be numbered, as numerous as the stars, quoting the promises God made to Abraham hundreds of years beforehand. And so our love for God is now in response to all of this. Right? As the Apostle John says later, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so John concludes, we love because he first loved us. I think that's why Moses brings up God's election of Israel here, because our response of love towards God is rooted in his choosing us, rescuing us, redeeming us, saving us. God brought the people out of Egypt, right? And then he commanded them, okay, now love me. And we likewise are first brought out of spiritual death and into spiritual life and then commanded to love God as the natural response to God's gracious work in our lives. And so, in light of all that he has done for us, let us love God with everything that we have. Now, this leads us now then into the fourth requirement that God places on our lives. Look down with me at, uh, ver- uh, look at verse 12 again. Moses says that we are to serve, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now to serve can mean lots of things in our context, right? You could serve someone dinner, like I'm presenting food to you, or um, I can serve someone with my, my work, my hard labor. So we talk a lot about serving, ways that you can serve in the church. <laughs> we need you to do stuff here. Um, we can also serve our countries by um, serving in the military. But here in Deuteronomy, the word is almost entirely used in a religious sense. He's talking about, about worship. That's what he means by serve, to worship. So as far as Moses is concerned, you are either serving or worshiping false gods. 
idols, or you're serving in the sense of worshiping the true God, Yahweh. Over and over and over again, Moses reminds the people, do not serve false gods of wood and stone. Do not go after them. Don't bow down to them. Steer clear of them. Instead, he says, you are to serve the Lord your God, to worship him alone, to give to him all of your praise and worship and adoration. That's, what he, that's why he adds down in verse 21, he, I mean God, he is your praise. All your worship to him alone. You know, in Hebrew thought, the, uh, the heart and the soul, these are not really like clearly separate things that we're talking about, but, but really just ways of talking about our, our, every internal part of us, like the, like the steering wheels that are directing the course of our lives, the driving force of our existence. And all of that is what should drive our worship of God. Which is why Moses expands on this thought with an explicitly religious image in verse 16. Uh, Moses says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So he's talking... Serve the Lord. Worship the Lord. And one of the ways that we do that, he says, is I want you to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Don't be stubborn anymore. Now this image of circumcision goes all the way back to Genesis 17 and, and the covenant that God makes with Abraham, right? Which was to be sealed with the circumcision of all the male children at eight days old. This ritual cutting away of the foreskin was meant to be a sign of, of humility, sacrifice, dedication, commitment towards God, a physical reminder of the ways in which the people were being set apart by God for His purposes. What's perhaps so surprising for us in reading his text today is that Moses speaks of, of circumcision in, in a manner that almost sounds New Testament-y, right? We think of, oh, uh, it's going to be the new covenant, and we're going to take away the heart of stone, and, 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 and this is the way that, that we think of something happening after Christ. Right? We, we read in uh, Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul draws a contrast between external circumcision and, and internal heart circumcision to, to, talk away, to talk about the distinction between empty obedience to a written code and heartfelt commitment to God. But clearly this wasn't something that Paul just sort of cooked up by himself. He's drawing on this tradition already laid down in Scripture. So we read the prophet Jeremiah, here in uh, Jeremiah 4, verse 4, says almost the same thing as Moses in Deuteronomy. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Clearly, God is after a radical reformation of their hearts, right? Something costly, something that cannot be undone. 
Something that cannot be reversed. A commitment that you cannot go back on. That's what this meant to symbolize. Now, admittedly, uh, Jeremiah's threats are a little more severe than we read in Deuteronomy. But, but, but look at verse 16 again. Circumcise your heart. And then he said, and what? And be no longer stubborn. Right? I feel like... <laughs> I feel like all we've done for the last two, three weeks is talk about how stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked, recalcitrant the, the people of Israel are, right? And sometimes as a, a dramatic, costly, visible, even painful sacrifice is what's required to draw them back into a heartfelt worship of God and God alone. Right? I mean, the allure of false gods and idolatry is, is ever-present in our own lives. And we, just like the Israelites, are stubborn and obstinate. We're hardwired to say no to all the, the, the right things and yes, please, <laughs> to all the wrong things. It, it's in our programming. It's the default factory setting. It's the way we come. Even born-again believers, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We can still resist and struggle and kick against and fight against the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think perhaps this is why Jesus speaks in such dramatic terms about the danger of sin. In Matthew 5, right in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, if your eye's causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, chop it off. Not literally, he's not encouraging mutilation, but, but as a symbol of the kind of dramatic and total commitment and worshipful service that we are called to give to God and the danger that sin presents in keeping us from doing that. Because it's impossible to worship God in the way that Moses is calling us to do here. It's impossible to worship God as long as we continue to, to cherish sin in our lives, to toy with it, to play with it, to tolerate it, to keep it tucked away in a corner somewhere so we can bring it out when we're stressed or lonely or, or fearful or anxious. You can't do both at the same time, Moses says. So circumcise your hearts today and be no longer stubborn. That's what Moses calls us to. Well, our final challenge this morning comes from verse uh, 13. And again, this is something that Moses has repeated over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to hear more and more of this over the coming chapters, right? Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So why does he keep repeating this? Keep the statutes, obey the Lord, keep his commandments, keep his statutes. Why does he keep repeating this? Well, if any of you have ever been a parent, you know exactly why. It's like, how many times have I got to tell you not to do this? Remember, we're stubborn, right? Obstinate, short memories. But look, we're answering this question from verse 12. What does the Lord your God require of you? And it's the kind of fear and love and worship that we've already talked about. But it's also the way in which we reflect God's character out into the world. 
right? Our, our right beliefs have to then be reflected in right actions. Like the two sides of the same coin. So, so who you are, your identity, is, re- is reflected most clearly in what you do, your actions. And Deuteronomy is not short on instructions and guidance on how you should be acting. We're going to be getting into that in the coming chapters. But right here, Moses does seem to have a specific area of focus in mind. So if you look with me at verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. We talked about that. And then he goes on to say, Who is not partial and takes no bribe. We learn first and foremost here that God is completely just and fair. He isn't partial. He doesn't take any bribes. Totally honest, above and beyond reproach. Right? In a world where filled with injustice and lying, cheating, deceiving, uh, we just can't wrap our minds around this, right? I mean, we're used to it in politics, lying, cheating, stealing, etc. But, but now we're seeing it even in like, like competitive chess playing, competitive fishing, we were talking about this, competitive Irish dancing, even. Partiality, bribes, lying, and cheating. It's everywhere. And in the ancient world, kings and rulers were often partial and very prone to taking bribes. But Moses wants the people to know, Yahweh is not like that. He's completely different. So Moses continues in verse 18. He, meaning Yahweh, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Look, this God whom we serve is not just impartial, but he actively cares for the least, the lowliest, and the most needy in society. He works to bring justice for the orphans, the widows, and the sojourners, the most vulnerable people in any given community. Those who, generally speaking, have no voice, no say, no power. Which means, Moses continues, we should do likewise. Our way of life should reflect the king whom we serve. So our hearts should beat with that same deep concern for the needs of those around us. And those right beliefs should be backed up with right actions. As God has done for us, so then we should do for others, right? The question is, how can we then be caring for orphans, widows, and the sojourners? So I know many people in our congregation um, have taken on the burden, the responsibility, but also the joy and blessing and privilege of of adopting children. And it is a high calling. And if you've talked with those families, you know the struggles and difficulties involved with that. But this is a a much-needed ministry that we're called to. And especially as we continue to fight against the evil of abortion, The church needs to be ready to support and to encourage women who are looking for alternatives. And so we should be praying, is God calling us 
to this work. Now, caring for widows is in some respects less glamorous, is less talked about than something like adoption, right? But it's every bit as important. In a sense, it's, it's a different form of adoption, right? It's a similar kind of sheltering opportunity that we have to offer, a chance to provide a, a protective cover around women who have lost their husbands and need a different kind of spiritual, emotional, financial, physical support and care and need in our community, in our church. Not just our churches out there, but our church needs to continue to be a place that cares for widows in this way. And of course, we also have the clear call here to help the sojourner. Now, this has been a hotly debated issue in the context of all the challenges with illegal immigration. But the bottom line is that whatever the politics involved, there are very real, tangible, significant needs in our communities and needs that we are in a position to help others with. And so we've worked with the church quite a bit with Exodus Ministries, a number of you doing food packing ministries, working to serve the refugee communities right here in DuPage County. Tangible ways to minister to the needs of sojourners in our neighborhood. And in so doing, reflecting the love of Christ into our community as well. Now, I need to wrap all this up, and, and I want to say... I, I know this is one of those sermons that can feel not just convicting, but, but overwhelming, right? Because honestly, I'm never, it's like a whole pile of stuff that I need to be doing in my life. And, and honestly, I'm never going to be able to measure up, nor will you. And sometimes when the goal is so difficult, so seemingly out of reach, our tendency can be to give up, to just sort of write it off as impossible. It's not even worth trying, because I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it anyway. So let me offer two brief words of encouragement. First, look with me at the end of verse 13. It says all this stuff, and look at these, these three words. He says, for your good. That's God's heart for you. Your good. Not your pain and suffering, not your misery and unending hardship, but your good. The Lord requires all these things from you, not because He needs them. Remember, God doesn't need anything from us, He lacks nothing. The Lord requires this way of life that I presented to you today for your good, for my good. It's for your benefit, right? It's for your blessing. A life dedicated to fearing, serving, worshiping, loving God, walking in all His ways is the only path to human flourishing. It's what you were designed by God to do. It's the way that you are meant to live for your good, 
So yes, absolutely, there is work involved. Yes, we have to strive towards that goal. Yes, it means self-denial. Yes, you're going to fall down and fail. Yes, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to oppose you and persecute you and make your life as difficult as possible. But you have to persevere to the end. There is no other hope for you in this world. That's the first encouragement. But the second is this. You are not doing any of this alone. Right? The Bible is so clear on this. You are not doing this alone. Jesus is the only person who ever walked this path with unwavering perfection and consistency. And it's only through him that we can ever hope to get even close to some success in our lives in doing the same. He is the power source that enables us to live in a manner that is holy and pleasing to God. So his yoke is a yoke, to be sure. There's no escaping that. Like, we are slaves to Christ. You are a slave now to Christ. But his burden is light, and he is leading us patiently, lovingly, perfectly towards our heavenly rest in God's presence. And he's doing that for your good and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we stand in awe of, of your presence, in awe of who you are. We can barely wrap our minds around how big you are, how mighty you are, how holy you are, how majestic you are. We can barely wrap our minds around this idea of your electing purposes, choosing us in infinitesimally small as we are in the, in the scope of the universe. Lord, we can barely wrap our minds around your love for us and the, the depth of your care and concern for our lives. And Lord, as we face into our week, we pray for your Spirit to help us live for your glory. Lord, to love you, to fear you, to serve you, to honor you, to worship you, and to walk in all your ways this week. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.